WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH Radio Boston, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. In the early hours of December 9th, the volcano known as Wakari, or White Island, off the northern coast of New Zealand erupted, killing several people. Wakari is New Zealand's most active volcano. It's also a popular tourist destination, and there were more than three dozen people on the island when the eruption happened. Volcanic activity there is closely monitored, but there was no advanced warning about this eruption. This tragic event highlights just how hard it can be to predict volcanic eruptions and how much scientists still have to learn about the inner workings of volcanoes. Jess Phoenix, known to many as Volcano Jess, is a geologist, and she's the executive director and co-founder of the nonprofit environmental science organization Blueprint Earth. Jess, welcome to Living Lab Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, although I wish it was under better circumstances. Yeah, we all do. So Wakari is New Zealand's most active volcano, and it's actually known uh, for a variety of different types of eruptions. So can you just describe uh, the most recent eruption? What seems to be going on there? Sure. So what we know so far is that it was a phreatic eruption, which is another fancy way of saying steam-driven. That means that this was not primarily um, like a, a giant explosive event with tons of magma. This was something where pressure had been building up uh, just beneath the surface of the volcano for many months. And uh, essentially, it boiled the water that is present in the volcano's plumbing system. And when that happens, this, this water gets so superheated and so pressurized that it essentially flashes to steam. And uh, it can move at supersonic speeds. And the water that would have come out during the eruption, and well, at this point, steam, would have been about 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And at this Mm. point, uh, we don't have any evidence that there was magma involved yet. But that doesn't mean that we won't find that uh, in the coming days when people are able to visit the island. Also, that steam-driven eruption can produce lava bombs and what we call ejecta, which is basically just things being thrown around, whether they're small rock fragments or large chunks of rock, which we have had reports that people who were present saw big chunks of rock flying. And, uh, hmm. and of course, we did see ash output as well uh, from the eruption. And we could see from the photographic images, you could see that helicopters uh, that were there were covered in ash. And that just gives you a bit of perspective about how forceful these phreatic eruptions can be. You mentioned that pressure had been building up for months and this volcano is closely monitored uh, for activity in, in hopes of predicting when there might be an eruption. What kinds of metrics, what kinds of things are actually being monitored on a regular basis to get a sense of whether or not an eruption might be imminent? Well, the the government agency tasked with monitoring volcanic activity in New Zealand is GeoNet. And GeoNet has uh, sensor arrays on many volcanoes, uh, pretty much all of the ones that could be uh, active and, and have an eruption there in New Zealand. Now, this particular one has seismic arrays monitoring it, uh, as well as what we call tilt meters, which uh, how the, that's how they get information about the volcanoes inflating and deflating uh, in the magma chamber. That basically, those tilt meters can measure changes in the ground surface on you know down to a millimeter scale in some instances. Uh, since I, I haven't actually been part of researching this volcano. 
I can't say, you know, how many of these they had or what the sensitivity was, but based on um, current best practices on volcanoes around the world, it's safe to say that New Zealand is going to have state-of-the-art equipment uh, monitoring the volcano. And, of course, scientists would go to the volcano and measure gas emissions in person. And that includes not just gas composition, but also temperatures of gas. And so those were some of the basics of monitoring that I can say for sure that they had in place. Um, but, you know, there may have been other sensors out there aside from seismometers, tilt meters, um, gas monitoring equipment, and of course, web cameras. Well, Jess Phoenix, as you've said, you haven't been studying this volcano uh, specifically, but you have been kind of active on Twitter uh, in recent days saying, hey, look, even with all of that information, it's still really hard to predict when an eruption is going to happen. Why is that? We can't actually predict eruptions at all. Uh, prediction isn't a word that volcanologists use because a prediction would imply that we could tell you when um, or how big an eruption would be. When in reality, we're just trying to get better at forecasting eruptions, which is essentially saying that there is a likelihood of an eruption and what that likelihood might be. So the difference between, you know, we I guess we throw around the word predicting, you know, when we're talking about the weather as well. But, yes. you know, the difference between saying... Uh, it will rain at 2.15 on Friday afternoon, as opposed to there's a really good chance that it's going to rain on Friday. Exactly. And so the latter, the the forecast is what we are working on improving all the time in volcano monitoring. And uh, the reason that it's so difficult is that volcanoes are incredibly complex systems. And we actually can't get probes down deep into the plumbing of a volcano. Uh, it's so hot. It's so oftentimes acidic. There's so much pressure. And a lot of times, you know, for a system to become pressurized, you actually have to have a cap on it. So, you know, you've got like lava that has solidified from previous eruptions, sometimes capping uh, vents or, or conduits up to the surface. So these are systems that are a lot of times fairly closed off. And we do surface level monitoring and monitoring of seismic waves uh, and seismic activity. That is kind of how we take an x-ray uh, of our patient as opposed to, say, you know, open abdominal cavity surgery where you can really look around and see what's going on in there. Also, and we're seeing this particularly with this eruption, is that some indicators can show increases and others can show decreases. And it's never certain what combination of factors means an eruption is imminent. In this instance, the seismic levels, the seismic activity had increased somewhat in the weeks preceding this eruption. However, um, the, the temperature of the gases being released had dropped. The um, sulfur dioxide output had increased. So you see we have two things increasing, hmm. one thing decreasing, and nobody can say because every volcano is unique, just like you or I, and even different eruptions on the same volcano are unique. And that level of complexity means that improving our forecasting is really the end goal. Obviously, the holy grail of volcanology would be to predict an eruption accurately, but realistically, we can't do that. And so we need to focus on refining our forecasting work. And that's what we try to do every day with our work. You know, you raised this issue that every volcano is unique, and, and I was about to ask about that. I mean, 
Is it possible to start drawing from the data that we have from other recent eruptions? I know there was one um, at Wakari in 2016, but one isn't a big data set to try to base, uh, you know, other forecasts on. Is it possible to start pulling from eruptions at other volcanoes and find similarities, parallels uh, that, that might help improve forecasts at one particular volcano? Well, we can do that, but there's also danger in in doing that as well because each eruption is so different. Um, you know, we a good example is the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Until that eruption, we did not know that volcanoes could erupt in that fashion, like with that with that volume of eruption, with that intensity mm. out the side. Mount St. Helens was a lateral blast. And so uh, what we have to do is look to the rock record. Um, that's what we, we look at as geologists. We are very often historians of the planet. So we can look at Wakari and, and say, you know, okay, what has it done in human history? What has it done the last time and the previous time before that? But even then, we are, we are painting a picture essentially in the dark. So it's a little bit more complicated uh, than just saying what happened last time. We can learn. We can say, oh, Mount St. Helens showed us that lateral blasts are possible. But that does not mean that every volcano is going to erupt laterally ever. You know, it, it may if the circumstances are right. But the most important thing to remember is that volcanoes are true forces of nature. And we are human. We don't control forces of nature. And we are still learning. The planet's history is 4.54 billion years old. And we have been doing science uh, on volcanoes in what we consider the modern era of volcanology since 1980. <laughs> That's, yeah, not a long time in the grand yeah. scheme of things. I wonder, though, if you had to try to make a different kind of forecast. I mean, how long might it take to be able to have more accurate forecasts, um, to maybe even eventually be able to predict eruptions? Or is that something that falls into a category that maybe is just not knowable? It would be nice to say, oh, someday, you know, hopefully we'll be able to predict eruptions. And I do. I do say that because I genuinely would love to be able to do that. Uh, we have 500 million people around the world living in the shadow of active volcanoes. So they could be directly impacted by an eruption. That is a huge number of people who require us to have a better grasp of volcanoes and what they can do. I think it is much more realistic uh, to think about in your lifetime, in my lifetime, better forecasting of eruptions. I think that's what we need to be shooting for. And that is what every volcano monitoring agency I've ever worked with does every single day. And that really involves uh, a lot of research. And that requires funding. That requires countries that have active volcanoes to invest in monitoring, to invest in educating the next generation of geoscientists who can help us uh, understand the volcanoes. And then, of course, we can't forget science communication, disaster communication. We need to get accurate information out, not just the scary stuff, not just the, the horrifying stuff, but really the facts to the best of our knowledge. To your point about getting accurate information out to the public, as we've discussed, this volcano is monitored by a group called GeoNet, and, and the hazard level was actually raised uh, last month. But the New Zealand government is, is now pursuing, they've said, cr a criminal investigation to see if there was any wrongdoing in this case. And I wonder what your response to that is as someone who has participated in this research trying to improve 
volcano forecasts to see that this might be under investigation? Of course, it's it's always important that we get the facts about any disaster, any sort of tragedy like this. Um, so I understand the government opening a criminal investigation because I certainly hope that nobody acted negligently. Obviously, I really hope that everyone there, everyone involved was acting with the, the safety of the visitors in mind. But of course, the investigation could reveal something that we as observers on the outside don't know. So I really do think it is it is correct for due diligence to be performed in this investigation because we, we can only make people safer if we learn from what has happened in the past. That's geologist Jess Phoenix, also known to many as Volcano Jess. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Up next, this year's Arctic report card and an expedition to understand sea ice by getting stuck in it. Stay tuned. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released its annual Arctic report card this past week. It concludes that, quote, Arctic ecosystems and communities are increasingly at risk due to continued warming and declining sea ice, end quote. The report card tracks seven so-called vital signs of Arctic health, including air and water temperatures, sea ice, and tundra greenness. And the authors say all of those vital signs are showing strong signs of global warming. But for all we know about how the Arctic is changing, there are still more questions. Hundreds of scientists have set out to answer some of those questions by taking turns spending a few months on a ship that deliberately has gotten itself stuck in the Arctic sea ice. That expedition is dubbed Mosaic, and Don Perovich is one of the scientists taking part. He's a professor in the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth College. Don, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning. So many parts of the globe and aspects of the climate system are changing. Why is it so important to specifically have an Arctic report card? The Arctic report card, it's it's motivated by an opportunity to assess what's going on in all the elements of the Arctic system. Uh, and the Arctic is interesting for a number of reasons, but also because of Uh, a quality called Arctic amplification, that basically the Arctic temperatures are warming around twice as fast as they are at lower latitudes. And so things are happening much more acutely in the Arctic and much faster in the Arctic. And why is it that the Arctic is changing so much more rapidly than the rest of the globe? It's because of, mainly because of a phenomena called Arctic amplification. Snow is a great reflector of sunlight. It reflects 85% of the sunlight. If we look at the Arctic Ocean, the ocean absorbs over 90% of the sunlight. So what Mm. happens is as there's warming, you get snow turning to water, turning to bare land, and you start absorbing more heat. And as you absorb more heat, you get more melting, which means you absorb more heat. And it's a positive feedback loop. It's an area where small changes can be amplified into large shoves. Positive in the sense that uh, it makes the effect bigger, but, but a pretty vicious feedback loop there. Yeah, perhaps it's better to think of it as a a vicious feedback, uh, because (laughs) there's nothing positive about it. 
Well, Don Perovich, this year's uh, report card highlights a number of, uh, if not record temperatures and, and melting, near record kind of seconds in a lot of cases with air and ocean temperatures, with uh, record or near record low sea ice extent and melting in Greenland, all of those things. But of course, that's what happened in one year. Put that into a, a longer perspective. I mean, one year is not in and of itself evidence for climate change. Correct. And uh, for the past 40 years, we've had satellites looking at the extent of sea ice. And it tells a story of continual decreases and also a story that the very nature of the ice cover is changing as it goes from ice that's, you know, four or five years old to ice that's just formed that year. You know, and that newer ice is thinner ice and less resilient ice. And then you can go back in time to look at uh, whaling records and go back another century or so and see that the losses we've had now were unprecedented in that record. And you can go back even further to look at tree rings and other uh, paleo records such as that and see that for the past 1,500 years, while there's always ups and downs in the sea ice extent, there's never been a drop-off that we've seen in the last few decades. Not, not one to match what we're seeing right now, you mean? Right. We, we've never seen a decrease as large as the ones we've seen in the past few decades. If we take that trend of declining sea ice, how long is it until we reach the point of an ice-free Arctic, either in the summer, or is it possible that we could eventually reach an ice-free Arctic year-round? Well, I think when we talk about ice loss in the Arctic, it's happening in every month of the year, but it's most pronounced in the summer. And we often look at the September ice extent. It's the end of the summer when it's reached its lowest levels. And looking ahead, there's no way to be sure, but climate models have uh, worked on trying to predict when it will be a summer ice-free Arctic. Those models say that we could have an ice-free Arctic in the 2040s, you know, plus or minus a, a decade. Well, Don Perovich, as you are... Um highlighting here, and as the Arctic report card highlights, we know a lot about how rapidly the Arctic is changing. But there are still some big outstanding questions, particularly with regard to sea ice. What are the some of the burning questions that you still don't have answers to? Well, I think one of the questions with sea ice is that how is the new Arctic Ocean behaving? Sea ice, you know, freezes, it can grow for a few years and eventually gets exported out uh, to the east of Greenland. But what we've seen is a transformation for that older ice that's a few years old and typically is, say, 10 to 15 feet thick and is fairly resilient. We've been losing that. Uh, back in 1985, that kind of ice covered 33% of the Arctic in spring. Now it's down to 1%. Uh, of the mm. Arctic ice cover. And what it's been replaced by is younger ice. And younger ice tends to be thinner ice. And thinner ice is less resilient ice. And by that, uh, I mean that let's suppose that normally in summer we lose two feet of ice due to melting. Uh, well, if you're a piece of ice that's 10 feet thick and it's a really warm year and you lose four feet instead of two feet, it doesn't really matter that much. But if you're this young ice and you're only four feet thick, you won't survive that that warm summer. 
because of these uncertainties, we want to know how the new, this new Arctic Ocean system works. And that motivated an experiment called Mosaic uh, that is interested in what are the causes and consequences of an evolving and diminished Arctic sea ice cover. So to call Mosaic an experiment, I think, is is maybe an understatement. This is an experiment on multiple fronts because uh, what's happening, what, what started in September, is that uh, an icebreaker, the polar stern, uh, has actually gotten itself deliberately stuck in the sea ice and plans to stay there stuck in the sea ice for a whole year. What can you learn from doing that that you can't learn from going in by boat or learning from satellite data or any of the other many technologies that we have for learning about the Arctic at this point? You know, you're right. It's a big experiment. It's the biggest uh, Arctic sea ice experiment ever. It involves uh, 19 different countries participating. There will be 600 researchers involved in one way or another, and it's a drift experiment that will go on for over a year. There are a lot of experiments in the Arctic uh, on the sea ice cover, usually in the spring, summer, and fall, hardly any in the winter. But what makes this different are a number of things. One, we get to read the whole book. Normally, you go up for a couple of months. It's like you have a complicated mystery and you get two chapters and you're supposed to figure out what's going on. Uh, but here, we're We've already started. We're there in the fall when the ice begins to freeze. We'll watch it evolve through the whole winter and see what happens when summer comes. Another key element of mosaic is it's interdisciplinary. There are five elements, uh, the atmosphere, the ice, the ocean, biogeochemistry, and ecosystems. And there's an awareness that it's a system. And if you change the atmosphere, you change the ice. If you change the ice, you change the ocean. If you change the ocean, you change the ecosystems. And one of the things we're going to be looking closely at Mosaic is how do these things connect? When you change one element, how does that change propagate through the entire system? Now, the Norwegian explorer Friedhof Nansen did something similar almost a century ago. How much of an inspiration has that been? I mean, obviously, uh, climate change was not on his mind. Technology was very different. Uh, are there things that have been learned or drawn from that expedition for this one? Yeah, I think one of the things we often think about with Mosaic is we're in the drift track of Nansen. Nansen's drift was from 1893 to 1896. It took three years. We expect to do our drift in a year and cover much of the same territory. So how can we go that much faster? Because we are not propelling ourselves. We're just drifting with the ice. Well, there are two things. One, we're starting further north than Nansen did because we can't start where he did because there's no ice there in the fall. Hmm. Uh, the ice edge has moved further north. And then second, this newer new Arctic, the ice moves faster. So we'll be going through more quickly. I think I've just, inspired by Mosaic, I've been reading a biography of Nansen, and it really shows how bold his ideas were. Uh, and I think there's a lot that... Uh, you know, we've learned from, from his expedition that still is valuable today. I think one of the big differences is when they left, it was like, well, 
See, it'll probably be three or four years, but don't worry till five years. Uh, <laughs> whereas e we're pretty much in constant email connection. Uh, so that's uh, the challenges were much greater in Nansen's days. <laughs> That's Don Perovich. He is a professor in the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth College and one of almost 600 scientists participating in the Mosaic Expedition. Don, thank you. Thanks for your interest. This is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. The Bible story of the Tower of Babel explains how all the world's languages arose, and many cultures have similar origin stories— but they don't answer the scientific question of how new languages actually emerge and develop. A team of three researchers set out to simulate that process with an experiment. What they found is that young children presented with a barrier to communication can construct a language in less than an hour. Joining me now is the lead author of that study. Manuel Bon is a postdoctoral researcher at Leipzig University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start with how you actually define a language. I mean, we all have a pretty intuitive sense. You know, in particular, if we could understand each other, we're probably speaking the same language. If we can't, we're not. But uh, at a slightly more technical level, what are the, the ingredients or the components that are required to say, yep, that's, that's a distinct language? That's actually a more complicated question than um, <laughs> than you might think. Um, now, on the kind of on the one hand, um, a language is kind of a conventional communication system that people of a certain group use. Um, it's something that is specific to a certain group. It has certain words that people in this community use to talk about things. It has a certain kind of grammatical structure. So it's kind of a narrow definition of a of a language. And there are roughly six thousand languages on the globe at, at this point. What do we know about how all of those different languages emerged? I mean, we, we know, you know, some of them are in families and related to each other and maybe when they arose, but that actual process of how they emerged, how much do we know about that? Not very much. I mean, and the main reason is because we can't travel back in time and go to the, go back to the, the times when these languages actually emerged. Fortunately, there are kind of some situations um, or some constellations in the in in modern times where new languages have arisen. Um, though these languages weren't spoken languages, but signed languages. So Manuel Bon, you wanted to get out of the realm of just observing as new languages happen to arise and actually get into the experimental realm to figure out how that happens, more than nuts and bolts. So where did the idea for this experiment come from and, and kind of what shape did it take? Yeah, so the, the original idea was um, that we were always fascinated by these studies looking at the emergence of, emergence of new sign languages. We were like fascinated by this and how much this can tell us about the actual process of language evolution and what, what goes into it. However, kind of the, the downside of these, um, these kind of natural experiments, if you want to say, is that um, people kind of started documenting them at a certain point in time. And what we were really mm -hmm. interested in are the very beginnings, like the moment when two people meet that don't have a, a shared language, how do they communicate? Um, and then right. how do they start to communicate? How do they establish reference to things in the world? Um, and then how does that kind of communication system that they, that they invent on the spot, what does it look like? Uh, and how does it change over time? Does it pick up some of the features that we know from language? How quickly does that happen? So that was kind of the questions that we asked. And the idea for the study was, um, so actually the, the idea to do a study like that was floating around for a long time in the lab. But then at one point we, we were on a Skype conversation and then we... We, we thought like, well, hey, this is actually a way we could do this. Um, um, we could just simply put kids in a Skype conversation and turn off the sound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that was our idea. And um, um, especially we, we wanted children to, 
communicate in a way um, that wouldn't allow them to use their already established languages. So even if you had um, children who don't speak the same language, I think they would still talk and probably pick up hmm. um, each other's language uh, on the fly, at least kind of in a, in a very narrow range. And so we wanted to avoid this and really kind of get them to communicate in a way that, that they've never done before. Hmm. Okay, so then you've got the communication barrier there. Um, then how do you give them the impetus to communicate? I mean, I imagine you could stick two kids on either end of a Skype connection. They can't talk to each other and they just kind of wander away and say, all right, well, I guess we don't talk to each other. So what kind of you know activities or prompts do you give them to challenge them to actually try to communicate? Yeah, so, so we, build up, we actually build up a, a connection, so a kind of communicative interaction um, before we turned off the sound. Um, so we involved this in a, in a little co- coordination game where we had two children in the separate rooms uh, and their task was um, to communicate the content of pictures. So we showed them pictures and one child had to communicate to the other child what's on the picture. It's like a game of charades, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, and that was the game that we're, they were playing. And then at some point we, we turned off the sound and tell, told them to continue playing the game. And did it continue to look like charades? <laughs> um, yes. So, so kind of the, the initial steps, I mean, the, then the challenge that you're confronted now is with in the situation where you know what to do, you kind of have, you know, what, that you have to communicate to the other person, but you don't know how. Um, and then the question is, how do you establish reference uh, in a situation like this? Like, how do you refer to something in the world um, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a word for it or if you have words for it, but you can't use them? Um, and then, mm. of course, um, the, the strategy that children resorted to and what, what we would do in, in a similar way is using gestures and kind of iconic gestures. So miming the actions that they previously um, talked about, um, now they would mime them. And this would give them a kind of a natural connection to the things that they're communicating about. So kind of anchoring the reference somewhat in their kind of shared experience of what hammering looks like or what um, eating looks like. Right. But there are some things that that definitely pose more of a challenge. You can hammer if you have that shared reference of what it means to hammer a nail in. But when you get to more abstract concepts like nothing or for that matter, something that's more of a sentence, you mentioned earlier, the need to develop Mm -hmm. grammatical structures. I mean, what did they do when presented with these more complex challenges? So it's kind of, with this coordination game, what this allowed us to do was that we could always kind of insert new pictures um, and kind of have them communicate about new things. And at some point, we, we actually did insert an empty picture to have them communicate about nothing um, or emptiness or white. Um, and children used all sorts of strategies. Um, um, some of them were successful, some of them weren't. But the, uh, the thing is that you just need one instance um, for it to work in order to establish a kind of a, a shared sign for, for this abstract concept. So there's right. just kind of lovely example of, the, of one diet where they were, were faced with this task and one um, kind of the communicator child was trying out all sorts of stuff. So they were um, like pointing to white stuff in the room, um, <laughs> trying to put their palms up like stop or nothing, um, like nothing, none of that worked. And the other girl was actually um, asking questions like, is it a bicycle? And no, it's not a bicycle. Um, shaking, the, shaking her head. Is it the hammer? And while she was hammering, the other child was um, not, again, shaking their head. And at some point, um, the communicator child just pulled their T-shirt to the side and pointed to a silvery white spot on her shirt. And that dis- did the trick for the other child. Huh. For whatever reason. And the interesting <laughs> thing was um, when they switched roles, the, the child that kind of previously understood, um, understood the gesture, when, when it was her turn to communicate, she did the same, exact same gesture. Now, the difference was there was no silvery white spot on her shirt. She had a red shirt and she just pulled it to the side and pointed to uh, the spot where previously um, huh. the white spot was on the other girl's shirt. 
So kind of what, what happened here is that within this kind of one instance, they established a, okay, this is our sign for nothing. Um, and it had a kind of a, um, a referential connection to something in the world in the first round, but the second round, totally abstract, completely removed from, from what, it, what it refers to and kind of only, can only be understood within this specific diet. But nevertheless, it worked, totally worked fine for them maybe gives you some insight into some of the quirks in any given language where you go, huh, why did somebody think of that? Or why is that the word or the phrase? And it may just be that by total fluke, it worked once and it, and it kind of stuck. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's kind of what communication is about. It's supposed to work. No, nobody cares how it works. <laughs> it just has to work. <laughs> uh, just if you, if you can find a way to get your, your message across, that's all you need. Um, and with the grammatical constructions, um, they started kind of spontaneously developing these like proto-grammatical construction when, we, when they had to suddenly com um, communicate more complex meanings. So what we did here is that um, we introduced um, new pictures, but this time the pictures didn't all have different things on them, for example, a hammer or a bicycle. But this time it was the same object, but with different properties. For example, you had a small hammer and a big hammer. And now mm. in this situation, it's really, I mean, you can mime a small hammer and you can mime a big hammer. And that's what, what actually a lar um, large amount of children just did. So they developed basically a new sign for um, a small hammer and a big hammer. But some of them, um, they started kind of going one step further and they created their own little sign for small and for big and for hammer. Um, and the, kind of the advantage of the, the sign, if you have a separate sign for small and big, is that you can kind of recombine this with other, um, other gestures. So you can communicate about a small ball, a small bicycle, and a small fork um, uh, just by, by combining um, your, your sign for, um, for small and your sign for, for fork or for ball. Like words in a language, you can kind of flexibly recombine them and communicate new meanings. But this type of communication only emerged um, when the messages they had to communicate got more complex. Well, Manuel Bon, this is one experiment. Uh, I wonder how much you can extrapolate from this to start to say, okay, what are the steps? Are there uh, shared, common, repeatable steps that get you from no way to communicate with each other to something that we might recognize as a language? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, this is, this is one experiment. And I think the the one thing that we can do, that we can do um, with this experiment is kind of provide a plausible way in which this can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it happened that way or that it will happen that way if, you, if a new uh, language would emerge, for example, but at least it provides a plausible way in which this could happen. And to what extent um, this kind of mimics an, an actual historic process um, is kind of an open question. Um, I don't know if we will ever be, answer, be able to answer this, but, but at least kind of we can provide a plausible way in which you can, you can think about um, how a new language can emerge. Were you surprised by how quickly the children were able to do this? Um, yes. <laughs> to be honest, yes. Um, but what surprised me even more um, was the variability. So mm. the, the, all the different ways in which they, um, first of all, the, kind of the broad variety of gestures that they invented for the individual objects, that was astonishing just to see so much variation. Um, and, and on the other hand, also in terms of the grammatical constructions, because you might imagine that um, what they would do is they would kind of use their native language as a blueprint and then just fill in the, like, re re replace the words with gestures and then end up all with the same structure. But that's not what we saw. So um, they used word orders that were all over the place. So sometimes, um, so, so in German, um, as in English, you would put um, the predicate before the nouns. So you would say a small duck. 
Um, right. And so you would expect the children to kind of first gesture small and then gesture Doug. But that's not what we saw. Um, like some children did that, but um, a large number of children also just started with the duck and then put small in the back. Um, so there was just so much variation in, um, within children and between children in what they did. Um, that, was, that was really astonishing. I expected them to be much more, on the, yeah, much more similar to one another. Manuel Bone, any good science raises as many questions as it answers. What are the, some of the, the new questions coming out of this experiment? I mean, one of the pressing questions, of course, how would this translate to other contexts of data collection? So we tested German kids. How about kids with a totally different um, language background? But then um, kind of another interesting question would be, how, how does that change if you, um, if you now think about kind of transmission across generations? Because there is evidence showing that if you transmit a language across generations, it actually becomes more structured and easier mm. to learn. And, and so this would be really interesting um, to see um, how this would change over time. That's Manuel Bon. He is a postdoctoral researcher at Leipzig University and lead author of a new study shedding light on the process by which new languages are developed. Manuel, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Up next, you eat a balanced diet. What about your social diet? Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. We all know we're supposed to eat a balanced diet, a healthy mix of fruits, veggies, proteins, fats, and fibers. I won't go on. The point is, research is suggesting that the same is true when it comes to social behavior. Both alone time and time with other people is important to mental health and well-being. And for that matter, not all social time is the same. Large groups and new people are different from small gatherings of close friends or family. And my next guest says all of it is part of a balanced social diet. Jeff Hall is a professor of communication studies at the University of Kansas. He's also chair for the Human Communication and Technology Division of the National Communication Association. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be here. So this idea of kind of a balanced diet seems logical, but on the other hand, a lot of the advice we hear is just straight up, more social interaction is better for well-being. So how new or controversial is this idea of actually getting a mix of different types of social time and for that matter, alone time? That was very much one of the motivations of the study, was the idea that all I had heard for years was this recommendation that we just should be spending more time interacting, both with close friends and family, but also with our weak tie relationships or people that we don't know as much. And I think that really that kind of misses the picture, because I think of social interaction as part of kind of a homeostatic system where we need to kind of recharge our batteries and have some time alone in order to have the most meaningful interactions. It also seems that there may be differences in what is uh, a healthy or balanced social diet for a given person, right? We've got different personality types, people who are really introverted, people who are really extroverted, people who thrive on social interaction, people who find it really difficult. So has that been taken into account at all in the research on well-being? One of the fascinating things about the relationship between social interaction and well-being, and when I mean well-being, I mean like life satisfaction, loneliness, and one of the things that's interesting is that social interaction seems to function independently of personality. 
So I think your intuition is correct. But one of the things that's kind of missing from the story is the idea that it can't just be the case that we are constantly trying to have these high intensity, very meaningful interactions with our friends and family. We all got to (laughs) work. That we do. So you have developed this theory called Communicate, Bond, Belong Theory, uh, in part to address some of the gaps and perhaps this more nuanced view of the relationship between social interaction and well-being. So lay that out. What exactly is that theory? It is a theory of social interaction itself. The main reason for the theory is to try to understand the role that social interaction plays in our lives. And it begins with the assumption that we have a strong need to belong, which means that essentially we need to find enduring, meaningful relationships that will will basically translate into our lives in a way that allows us to feel a sense of connection and belongingness to other people. The second major factor is this issue of time and energy. Uh, the theory presumes that we have only a limited amount of time and we only have a limited amount of energy in order to manage all of life's tasks. And social interaction is only one of life's many tasks. And the third component of this is that the content of the interaction and the who matter a lot. Some interactions are really high intensity and some barely take any work at all. So both interactions that are things such as a meaningful, deep conversation and also a conflict interaction takes a lot of our energy, but one has a very positive valence and one has a more negative valence. So the theory presumes that to balance all of these different things, what we're looking for is balance and homeostasis rather than just more and more and more. Hmm. So, Jeff Hall, you set out to both replicate the finding, this common idea that more frequent social interaction leads to well-being, and then to also test some of the hypotheses and ideas that come out of this communicate, bond, belong theory. So what exactly, how how do you set up an experiment to do that, and what, what do you look for? Yeah. Um, One way we thought about this is that I'm a big fan of capturing people where they are in their regular everyday lives. And there's this wonderful tool that's called experience sampling. And what it is is that it pings people throughout the day five to seven times and says, what are you doing right now? You know, are you alone? Are you with someone? What did you talk about with whom? What was it like? And you do that for several days in a row. So people like download an app to sign up for the study or something like this, and and you ping them several times a day to ask what they're doing? You got it. We actually recruit people and pay them to do it because it's quite a lot of obligation for research participants. Um, So, for example, in the first study, there was 116 participants that we paid for five days. And then in the um, third study, we actually recruited 127 people. That was over the course of seven days. And so in both cases, these were paid participants. The second sample was all con- uh, made up of people who were from California and were working adults. And the first sample was a split between students and working adults. And then the other technique we used was something called a diary study, which is basically at the end of the day, you report what happened during that day and how you felt and the kinds of things that you did focused on social interaction. So I took all three of these uh, samples with people throughout the country and had over 10,000 moments or days of records of what they were doing with their time, who they were interacting with, and what they felt about it. And we combed through those in order to test five different aspects of the communicate, bond, belong theory. So what are those? The first one is that we looked at this idea of what I call a striving communication episode. And in past research, I identified four ways that we have a communication episode that seemed to really matter. And the four are joking around catching up, a meaningful conversation, and expressing affection. 
Now, what's wonderful about these to me is that if you take them all together, they actually look quite dissimilar to one another, yet they all have similar aspects. They all tend to be pretty energy-intensive activities, right? They're things that require a lot of focus, a lot of uh, attention to another person and partner responsiveness. They also tend to be things which are relatively rare um, in terms of your daily interaction. The most common daily interaction you have is things related to your job or to school. So the argument that I was making from there is that when we have more of those, then people are going to experience, you know, they're going to report higher levels of global well-being. What's interesting is this is one of those ones that I tested out that actually really made a difference how you measured it because it seems that what really matters is at the end of your day that you have some right? Some portion of your daily time was spent on those four different types of interaction was what matters. But on any given moment, more and more and more don't seem to matter that much. Hmm. And the way that I interpret that data is to essentially say that we need these kind of strong striving communication episodes to be a, a part of our recipe of social interaction, but they don't need to constitute the entirety of it. That's, I guess, where alone time as well might come into this idea of a balanced social diet. How much do we know about the importance of alone time and, you know, that being distinct, of course, from being lonely? What's fascinating is we know very little about it. I mean, I find it incredible because as a person who has been trying to study social interaction for a while now, the research that I comb does not really talk about what it means to be alone. There are people who approach alone time in a different way. You're right. Loneliness researchers are very concerned about that, for example. Um, And also people who tend to think of the idea of um, other behaviors like reading or exercise or whatever, things that you might do by yourself. Although they don't study it in relation to a social interaction as being the opposite of that. Hmm. Um, But you're bringing attention to something I think is fascinating. The most surprising thing about the results from my perspective and that of um, Andy, my co-author, was that how people felt when they were alone was one of the strongest predictors of global well-being compared to all of these things. So specifically, when people felt quite comfortable and content being alone, this was a very strong predictor of these global life satisfaction variables. Is it that being satisfied with your social interactions is predicated on being comfortable alone, or is it that being satiated socially enables you to be happy being alone sometimes? Personally, I would argue for the latter. In prior research that I've done, what happens is is when people have one of those striving communication episodes that I just described, later in the day, they're more likely to be alone and happy to be that way. So what it seems to suggest is that it kind of satiates that need to belong within our days, and then we're okay to be alone. And that's what I have a problem with a more linear model that just says more is better. You know, many Americans these days feel like they're just too busy Um, with activities and jobs to actually ever see friends, hang out, be social. And also, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, social interaction happening via maybe social media, happening online, but not face-to-face. What are some of the ramifications of that for individual well-being and also societally? I think they're huge. I mean, to be honest, I I have a very personal and and, uh, social-level concern that this is the life that we're living right now as Americans. I have a book coming out next year that's called Relating Through Technology. And in the last chapter of the book, I do an analysis taken from the American Time Use Survey, which is done by the U.S. Department of Labor. And in that analysis, I show that the amount of time that we're spending in face-to-face interaction has been going down for the last 15 years. And these are nationally representative adults. They're talking about how they use every minute of every day. And it's going down. And one of the things that's interesting is it's not being replaced by phone calls or Skyping or things like that. But the amount of time we spend on media of various sorts is going up. 
But this is the thing that you said I think that's important on this. The people who spend the least time in face-to-face interaction, the two activities that are most strongly negatively correlated with that is time at work and time commuting. We're living far away from our jobs, and we're working more and more hours at Americans. And it seems to be the case that we're also having less and less social interaction, perhaps as a consequence of that, although that relationship is not causal. So there is a deep concern, and I, sh- I share that concern, and it's partly the reason that I, you know, I'm trying to sort of talk publicly about the importance of us prioritizing our relationships and time together. Hmm. But the other piece that I want to add to this is one of the other Communicate Bond Belongs specific theories that we tested in the paper was about the idea of volition or choice. On days where people felt like they had more choice or were interacting in the ways that they were by choice, like they wanted to be being there talking to that person, the less lonely they were, the happier they were with their life, and the more positive emotions they experienced. So this idea of having choice in how you interact actually is a key part of both the theory and also in the results of the study. Of course, this time of year, often um, we tend to have an opposite problem, which is being overloaded with social interaction and not necessarily feeling right. like we have a choice, right? right? Totally. <laughs> um, so especially given that your research is showing that, you know, some alone time is part of a, of a healthy balance of social interaction, any advice for navigating the holidays or is it just something where <laughs> you hold your breath and you know that it's going to end in a, in a few weeks? Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, so a couple thoughts on that. One thing is I think We understand that in some ways spending time with our family is important and we all feel that obligation during the holiday time a lot. But what's kind of odd is is that because it's combined with very little choice and a lot of constraints in the sense that you have to do it on this day or in these ways, and that also goes with work colleagues at holiday parties or otherwise, I think that those two things might cancel each other out somewhat. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) I'm not so sure that feeling no volition or no choice in the matter is a good thing. But specifically, I think to your point, one thing that I wonder about, and I I don't have um, clear evidence to support this, but I wonder whether or not families who are actually comfortable with members who are visiting or otherwise spending a few hours by themselves kind of sequestered in their guest room or, you know, relaxing and reading or taking a nap or whatever, that actually might be a pretty good practice, right? You don't have to spend every single moment of the time you're visiting with people in interaction with them. That's unlikely to be a good recipe for feeling better. And maybe giving people a break might allow for more quality interactions when you actually are together. Bingo. That's Jeff Hall. He's professor of communication studies at the University of Kansas. Jeff, thanks so much and uh, enjoy the holidays. (laughs) I hope that to all of your listeners as well. And that's our show. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.